to work. You're listening to the news on RTHK. trend for the last three to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Thursday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. U.S. stocks rally despite rising bond yields and the dollar. Japan's Nikkei 225 index rises for the ninth consecutive day as the yen falls to an eight-year low. Stocks in Shenzhen close at a new record high and sportswear company Nike is cooperating with U.S. authorities over the investigation into FIFA. Well, Asian markets continue to outperform their global peers as the dollar moves higher. We'll discuss the implications of this stronger dollar on uh, Asian economies and whether they are as strong as the markets suggest. That's with HSBC's global economist, John Zhu. Also joining us uh, this morning will be the Consul General of India, Prashant Agrawal, to look at investing through the Make in India program. And our regular guest host uh, for Thursdays, Peter Lewis, is with us. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So, Peter, the Hong Kong uh, finance minister, John Chung, said yesterday that he sees no signs of reckless speculation in the local market. Do you agree? Overall, I think he's probably correct, although you have to be a little bit careful because, as we've seen in the last week with certain shares, there has been um, a, a fair amount of speculation. But Hong Kong is a much more international market than Shanghai. Um, it's more dominated by institutional investors than the A-share market. So I, I would tend to agree that um, we're not looking at the same sort of speculation that we're seeing in Shanghai. But bear in mind that volatility is up and volatility equals more risk. Mm, Good to know we're not going to be importing some of those China issues. Well, in U.S. markets overnight, uh, shares rebounded strongly despite a rising dollar. The U.S. dollar rose another 0.6% against the yen. And the U.S. dollar index, which is a measure of its value against a basket of currencies, rose 0.1%. In the stock markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed 120 one points higher at 18,162. The S&P 500 rose 0.9% to 2,123. And the NASDAQ closed 73 points higher at a new record high of 5,106, led by Broadcom. The stock closed 21% higher on news that Avago Technologies, a manufacturer of semiconductors, was in talks to buy the company. U.S. sportswear manufacturer Nike says that it's cooperating with the U.S. uh, Department of Justice with investigations into football's governing body FIFA. U.S. authorities have accused FIFA of racketeering, fraud and money laundering involving tens of millions of dollars over the past 24 years. The U.S. charges also claim that an unidentified sportswear company bribed a Brazilian soccer official for a sponsorship agreement. Peter, Russia says that the U.S. is exceeding its authority by bringing these charges against an international organization. 
So why then is the U.S. involved in this, and could the investigation snag more companies? Well, Russia's concerned because it's holding the next World Cup, so it's worried that maybe they'll have to redo the bidding for the uh, for the next couple of World Cups. The U.S. is right to be involved in it for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, a number of the allegations relate to members of the Central and North American Football Federation, which is based in Washington, D.C., and also the, the charges um, say that an, a, a number of the, the money laundering and fraud events took place on, on U.S. Soil, so um, the, the U.S. is entitled to look at things that are going on on its uh, on its own soil. Um, football, though, is a big business for companies like Adidas, like Nike. I mean, last year, Nike uh, made $2.2 billion in revenues from, uh, from football, and it's had a, a 24-year association now with Brazil, sponsoring the Brazilian um, national team. So companies will certainly be concerned about where this might go and what it might mean for their revenues overall. Well, U.S. Uh, Treasury Secretary Jack Lew warns that Greece could end up leaving the euro by accident and that the country and its creditors were not doing enough to reach an agreement. He spoke at the London School of Economics and said that a miscalculation at this stage could be very damaging as Greece struggles to meet a deadline next week for a 300 million euro payment to the IMF. Despite the warning, though, from Jack Lew, European stocks closed higher on rumors later denied by an EU official that Greece and its creditors had started to craft a deal. The FTSE Euro First 300 closed up 1.3% and the euro reversed course to trade higher on the day. The Chinese yuan's share of global payment system has now risen to a four-month high as the yuan is increasingly used to settle international trade flows. The yuan is now the fifth largest payment currency in the world as Asian countries have adopted it for the bulk of their payments within Greater China. Earlier this week, the IMF stated that the Chinese currency is no longer undervalued. However, the U.S. maintains that China is unfairly manipulating its currency in order to gain an advantage for its exports. So how is the yuan fairly valued? Claudio Piron is a Singapore-based strategist at uh, the Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Our own Bank of America Merrill Lynch fair value model, which is consistent with kind of IMF methodology, suggests the fair value of dollar China should be around 6.21, which we're currently more or less about at the moment. So we think that debate is over. The debate has to clearly focus on bringing the internationalization of the renminbi and liberalizing that capital account. What does a stronger yuan mean for the U.S.? Here's Claudio again. I think the key thing here is how are we going to make the world a better place, so to speak, in terms of international financial architecture. Uh, We need China and the U.S. cooperating together. We need a better coordination of monetary policy uh, and policy around the world. If not, we're going to get this growing divergence. We saw that with the Asia uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank with China. That will only fragment the global infrastructure around the world. So I think it's both in the U.S. interest and the China interest that we get an increase inclusive cooperation going. Former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke said uh, that he didn't foresee a hard landing for China's economy. He said China needed to change its growth model to be more sustainable in the long term and markets shouldn't fear a U.S. rate hike. Meanwhile, volume on the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges remains close to record highs after a raft of announcements designed to further liberalize the Chinese financial system and economy. The Shanghai Composite closed up 0.63% to 4900 
1,941 points. The Shenzhen Composite closed at a new record high of 2,918. Retail investors bought heavily after news that A-shares would be included in some of the widely tracked FTSE indices. So how are fund managers positioning themselves in China as the market continues its meteoric rise? Here's Chris McGuire, CEO of the hedge fund Phalanx Capital Management. Valuations have increased immensely since when we heavily got involved in China a year ago. Uh, P.E. ratios were trading in the high single digits in August of last year. Now they're trading at 25. Uh, If we stripped out a lot of the state-owned enterprises, valuations could be as high as 40 uh, on a P.E. for the Shanghai Composite. We're getting close. Uh, We're very cautious about the market continuing, although uh, I hate to say this, but I'm hesitant at saying bubble yet. I still think we do have more to go. The momentum from Chinese buyers is immense. We've trimmed our exposure a great deal. Last year, it was obvious, uh, most obvious to be long China. It was a no-brainer to be long in fourth quarter. Uh, but right now, I think there's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. And I think uh, upside, uh, upside prices are far more limited than they once were. All right, let's bring in our first guest of uh, the morning, uh, John Zhu, who is HSBC's Global Research Economist. Good morning, John. Good morning. So, John, you know, Japan's uh, Nikkei has closed higher for a ninth day in a row, closing up 35 points to a new 15-year uh, high of 20,472. And the market has been boosted by a weaker yen, uh, which fell to an eight-year low against the dollar. Is this a reflection of weakness in the global economy? I think it's more a reflection of the divergence in the policies of the US central bank, the Federal Reserve, and many of the Asian central banks, not just Japan, but a lot of Asian countries are still going to cut interest rates to ease policy, which is, I think, appropriate for their economies because a lot of them are, I think, performing weaker. The data out of China has been rather disappointing. And so it seems to me a natural reflection of some of the divergence um, or relative divergence between the US and a lot of Asian economies. John, what is the cause of this strengthening dollar? So the U.S. is still very accommodative. So let's not forget the Federal Reserve is still basically at zero. And so monetary policy there, including, of course, the various rounds of QE, has still helped the U.S. economy. Now, where we go from here is more likely to be uh, rates going up rather than, well, it can't really go any further down. And so, in some ways, the U.S. economy, given the growth that you've seen in the past six months or 12 months, and also with unemployment now fairly low, fairly close to normal standards, you can argue that the U.S. economy is pretty close to normal but the setting of monetary policy, where interest rates are, are still very, very far from what you would consider normal. So it's more of a normalization process. So as the U.S. Um, normalizes monetary policy, is Japan going to be able to carry on being stimulative in terms of its own monetary policy? Or are we going to start having to look elsewhere in terms of maybe structural reforms to try and boost the economy? I think the structural reforms and also counter-cyclical stimulus are not necessarily, uh, I guess, substitutes or even, um, I think, things that you have a trade-off. You need structural reforms for long-term structural growth. That's all well and good. But at the same time, um, there is still an argument for loosening policy to make sure that you are also fighting the cyclical factors such as 
the slowdown in much of Asia and also continued um, deflation as well. But in terms of our base three arrows, we've seen a lot from um, sort of monetary policy, and, um, but we haven't really seen much of the third arrow, have we? The, the actual structural reforms themselves, which, and, and isn't there some sense that as long as the Bank of Japan is so accommodative, it, it takes the pressure off the government to really um, do very much more? I think the pressure will be there. Um, I mean, any government doesn't want to really fall too far behind what its stated aims are. And I think the government and also the markets are aware that um, the structural reforms need to come at some point. Um, for now, I think they're quite right to focus on some of the near-term risks, which unfortunately are to the downside given the weak data that we've seen. But that's not really something that should, I think, affect structural reforms as well. So they've got various tools and various instruments to target both the structural and the cyclical issues. So, John, uh, switching gear, uh, you know, investors around the world have their eye on India. And here we are uh, after 12 months of uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi having taken power. Uh, in your opinion, how has he done for the country and for investors, I should say, around the world? Well, I suppose for investors, um, they've been uh, giving him quite a lot of the benefit of the doubt. Uh, markets have reckoned that this is quite a bit of a game changer, if you like, both in terms of the economic management and also, I think, some of the structural reforms that are going to come. So on the whole, um, well, you're seeing now that uh, India's GDP growth this year is quite likely to be fairly strong, probably even stronger than China's. Um, so this, I think, on the whole, is it's very early days, but right now I think um, investors and the markets are you know taking it fairly well. All right, John, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's John Zhu, and he is HSBC's global research economist. The Electoral Affairs Commission has published the proposed guidelines on election-related activities in respect of the district council election for public consultation. You can send a written submission by June third. The proposed guidelines are available at the Commission's website, www.eac.gov.hk, the Registration and Electoral Office and the Public Inquiry Service Centres of District Offices. For inquiries, please call 2891-1001. Well, let's take a quick look at the numbers before we move ahead. The Nikkei is up six-tenths of a percent to 20,594. Australia's ASX 200 is up 0.08% to 5,728. And Sol's Kospi up half a percent this morning to 2,117. Well, it has been uh, 12 months of uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And what have we seen? Now, in terms of vulnerabilities, India has arguably done the best of the fragile five with the current account deficit coming down, inflation halved, FX reserves and growth picking up. And then in terms of reforms, quite a bit has been accomplished too. The economy has opened up to FDI, a new monetary policy framework is in place and the ministries have been streamlined. All of this, of course, is of huge interest to the international investor in the India story. Nomura Securities Chief Economist Rob Subaraman calls it the biggest turnaround emerging market. 
I think the policymakers led by Modi but also Raghuram Rajan at the central bank have been very far-sighted um, and this is very unusual for emerging market economy. India could have very easily cut interest rates, um, done a big fiscal stimulus and um, you know let the rupee appreciate substantially. Um, that, that could have led to a, a boom but typical in EM that would have led to, a, led to a bust in a few years time. I think India this time round is doing it very sensibly. Um, and really trying to make sure inflation gets down to 4% and stays low. They want to get the fiscal finances in shape. And they don't want to use up all their competitiveness by letting the rupee appreciate substantially in the short term. So they are building up reserves. I call it uh, India's Goldilocks economy because I think growth is picking up, inflation is coming down. But um, without the punch bowl, I don't think investors can expect a quick buck um, from India. It's not going to be a boom-bust uh, cycle. It's going to be a more long-term, sustainable recovery, but it's going to be more gradual. Well, we're very pleased to welcome into the studio this morning the Consul General of India to Hong Kong and Macau, Prashant Agarwal. Good morning, Prashant. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. So, uh, you know, the last couple of months have been pivotal for relationships between China, Hong Kong and India. You know, we've seen uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi conclude a three-day visit to China. How important would you say this visit was to the business community? Well, indeed, Renita, as you mentioned, this was a very significant visit uh, over, spanning over three days. But speaking specifically about the business community and how the visit was of interest to them. So there were 26 specific agreements which were signed between businesses of both sides, totaling uh, investments of almost $22 billion. So there is a lot of uh, follow-up action involved, not only for mainland Chinese companies, but from companies from Hong Kong as well. We had a, a very important, very high-level CEO forum from where companies from Hong Kong were present in strength, and a lot of follow-up action has been generated, which we, which we are doing with companies over here in Hong Kong. Now, of course, you know, companies, individuals, investors, the whole spectrum, you know, are really interested in investing in India and sort of participating in the India so- story, so to speak. Um, could you explain to our listeners what the Make in India program is? Sure. So, uh, you know, one thing which I have been uh, particularly fond of saying is that Hong Kong has positioned itself uh, very well as gateway to China. And we are very keen to, to make sure that Hong Kong also becomes a gateway to India for mainland companies as well as for companies based here in Hong Kong. And, and in that, the Make in India uh, program is extremely important because essentially in that we invite companies from mainland as well as in Hong Kong to, to man- manufacture in India, not only for Indian market, which is which is huge and offers a lot of depth, but also for markets across the globe. Uh, very specific measures have been taken to, to facilitate uh, manufacturing as part of Make in India. And, and do you think Indian companies are in general ready for that? Because we're seeing, you know, a sort of a de- bit of a decline in business confidence at the moment and, and cutting back on future production plans amongst a number of large companies. Are, are they going to be able to sort of cope with, uh, w- w- with that plan? Well, in fact, uh, you know, I would uh, like to submit that Indian companies are willing to partner, uh, you know, their overseas counterparts. And I think Prime Minister Modi's visit a very fine example. I mentioned these 26 specific uh, examples, which are essentially partnership agreements, joint ventures between Indian companies and Chinese companies. So we want to ensure that they, that there is a level playing field for, for outside companies as well as uh, domestic companies, which have grown in stature over the years. Now, specifically to get involved in the 
Make in India program, do you actually need to go set up shop in India? Well, uh, certainly that's one of the key emphasis that we want to attract manufacturing. So we have identified 25 specific segments, segments like textiles, sports, um, uh, even hospitality industry, uh, where we have offered specific policy guidelines, specific incentives, specific agencies which do the hand-holding, an agency called Invest India. And the consulate is, of course, the very first interface for for companies here in Hong Kong. Is it at all possible to sort of invest in private equity companies or funds, uh, venture capital funds, uh, you know, who would in turn invest in such companies? Oh, yes. In fact, uh, actually, most of the funds uh, which are based in Hong Kong are deeply invested and interested in India. So so that process is going on as it is. and what about some of the famous sort of red tape that we hear about in India? Is, yeah. is part is part of the, the reform process making it easier for Hong Kong companies who want to go to India and set up shop there? Will, will it become easier for them to do so? I'm glad you asked me that because cutting down red tape is certainly a very high priority. When it comes to ease of doing business, uh, uh, India has not ranked as high as it ought to have been. So there have been very specific measures which have been undertaken and, and currently being undertaken. Things like, you know, doing labor reforms, you know, making compliances much more easier. So all that is happening. Now, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the the investor here in Hong Kong and frankly globally is very interested in investing in India. But, you know, one question that we constantly get from listeners to this show is, but but how do we do it? How do we actually do it? Um, So we had in uh, an analyst the other day, for example, who said, well, maybe the most sensible way to do this is, you know, by buying an India ETF. Sure, that's one way. But what are other ways uh, that this could be done? I mean, is it through securities? You've talked about making India. What are we missing? So uh, uh, equities and ETFs, uh, they are one option. In fact, right now we have a high-level delegation in town which is talking to investors about an ETF that uh, involves almost 10 blue-chip Indian uh, public sector undertakings. But apart from that, uh, we are also very keen to assist every individual company. And we are talking of some of the big names here in Hong Kong, companies like China Light and Power or Li and Fung. So we would like to engage with companies specifically, listen to what what are their core strengths, how exactly they want to expand their footprint in India, and offer them very customized, tailor, you know, tailor-made advice and assistance to, 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 to fructify their business plans in India. So that's something which we have been doing you know, in, in a very targeted and focused manner. And is this specifically an attempt to sort of increase their presence in India's um, uh, public infrastructure projects? Well, public infrastructure is certainly a very high priority because, you know, we do need a lot of investment to improve our infrastructure. But we would be uh, willing to engage, as I said, in those 25 identified sectors which are of high priority. Most of them are actually essentially in our infrastructure areas. And what are some of the others, if you can give us a... Well, as I gave you some examples, you know, uh, for Hong Kong, the strengths are ports, uh, you know, financial sector, then uh, manufacturing in in, in areas such as textiles, uh, uh, you know, we are also engaging with the with the with the mainland Chinese, the the Guangdong province, as part of an integrated in engagement with the Pearl River Delta. So, uh, a very specific focus on what Hong Kong's key strengths are.
Now, uh, one of the things that happened recently was that ICICI, which is one of uh, India's biggest banks, uh, just turned their 12-year-old uh, rep office in Shanghai into a full-fledged branch. And in fact, um, Chanda Kocher, the chief executive, says that more money is needed, uh, you know, funneled from China to India, you know, for these various projects, infrastructure and so forth. Will we see more of that kind of thing happening, sort of the Indian banks and the state banks uh, uh, opening up fully-fledged branches abroad and specifically in this part of the world? Oh, certainly. I think that's a, that's a trend which we are going to witness. I mean, just to give an example, in Hong Kong alone, we have 13 Indian banks which are present. But what ICICI has done is a very firm indication of this growing broad-based engagement between India and China, specifically on economic and commercial fronts. And, and banks have a very important role to play in, in providing capital and, and loans. And, and we know that China is very important to, to India in terms of development and you know, investment. How, how important do you think is the other way around? Because China is almost going all over the world at the moment, sort of signing agreements and starting up infrastructure sort of projects. We've just seen that in South America, um, for example. Where do you think sort of India fits into China's uh, sort of priorities in terms of um, you know, this type of investment and, and you know, these types of partnerships? Sure. Uh, so the indication which we get is there is an overwhelming sense, uh, you know, on the part of Chinese companies and investors to engage in India. Uh, partly also because the kind of uh, uh, market that India offers is, is not easily available in many other places. And there are a lot of mutual complementarities. Uh, for example, in India, services sector is very strong, whereas uh, Chinese companies have excelled in manufacturing. So I think there are mutual complementarities which are available to them in India, uh, which are very difficult to find elsewhere. And just to give you an example, uh, a, a company like Alibaba or Vanda Group, they all have major plants mm-hmm. in India. So so we discern a very clear sense of, you know, very focused engagement coming from Chinese companies as well. Peter, you have often said that, uh, you know, India is a good story, but not necessarily easy, mm-hmm. an easy one for investors. What do you say now, having listened to Prashant? Well, I think it's certainly getting easier. I mean, it, India has historically been a difficult place to do business in, and I've been going there for you know, almost 30 years now. But you notice, you know, when you start going for a long period of time, just how much things have changed um, in India. And it's certainly getting easier for foreign investors to um, sort of access the country and invest there. And that has to be a positive thing for the for the country to make it easier for, for foreign investors to come, to set up business there, simplify the tax sort of regimes, all the things, Prashant, that you've been talking about sound extremely positive. Prashant, what do you think? Uh, uh, sort of the pacifying words of a skeptic or is there some truth in that? <laughs> no, what I can say is that there is a very clear determination on part of the government to, to attract, uh, you know, the foreign investors and companies to India. So there, so every possible thing that can be done, I, I think past one year of the Modi government, it, you know, uh, I think the actions speak for, for themselves, you know, as you heard by, by your previous speakers. All right, Prashant, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Prashant Agrawal and he is the Consul General of India to uh, Hong Kong and Macau. Well, here we are almost at the end of the show. Let's take a quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is up uh, 
half a percent to 20,574. Australia's ASX uh, 200 index is up 0.16% to 5,733. And Seoul's Kospi also up three-tenths of a percent to 2,113. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.08 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.74 yen. And one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 90 cents and one US dollar and 53 cents. Gold currently valued at uh, $1,187 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $62.45. Well, Peter, here we are at the end of another Thursday. What should we be looking at for uh, market moving events for the remainder of the week? Well, we're seeing almost on a weekly, if not daily basis, news coming out of China about how the economy is going to be boosted and market opening um, sort of measures. We've seen two or three significant events this week. I think that will continue. Um, We also need to keep an eye on Greece because we're coming up to a very critical point now. They have another payment to make um, at the beginning of June to the IMF, 300 million euros. And Greece says it doesn't have the money to do it. So we're really reaching crunch time um, now in terms of their negotiations with their creditors. And the, uh, the resolution of that will really dictate European markets and the euro. Yeah, I suspect we're going to be talking, uh, you know, back to our favorite topic of Greece uh, a lot more next week. All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, our regular Thursday guest host on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's show. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be hot with isolated showers in the morning and sunny intervals during the day. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 84%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, has responded to the corruption scandal gripping football's international body by saying that those who engaged in misconduct had no place in the game. His comments came as the United States Justice Department said its investigations into two decades of systemic corruption within FIFA were continuing. It's charged 14 people with racketeering, fraud and money laundering. The Secretary General of UEFA, Gianni Infantino, says Sepp Blatter has to step down from the presidency of world football. European football governing body is also calling for the postponement of tomorrow's FIFA presidential election, which was expected.